Hello and welcome to the Guns on Pegs podcast. My name is George Brown and I'm the editor at Guns on Pegs. I'm joined as usual by Chris Horn. Chris, you've been shooting. I have. One of those few people that has been. No, it's, <laughs> there's a bit more going on than we think, isn't there? Uh, yeah, I had a mega day on um, on Monday at Water Priory. Really good fun. Quite a, quite a big day to start the season. I, you know, it's it's quite hard to live up to that after that. <laughs> How did you get on? Did you shoot all right? I was all right. Yeah, I don't really think about that much anymore. I do comment on my dad when he misses one or two, though. Did he miss some? <laughs> a couple. He was <laughs> he was using his side by sides, and he had a fairly punchy load through them, and I was like, that mm-hmm. could end in tears. But no, it went well. It was a really uh, good day. Well, speaking of punchy loads, I'm off to the Isle of Muck this week. Ah, by the time this goes out, I'll I'll be back. But uh, yes, I'm going to be using some fairly serious stuff through my side by side. So if I come back and I'm two inches shorter, you will know why. <laughs> I can't believe you're doing that because for those that listen to the live podcast we did at the game fair, I, you would have remember me talking about a story of a friend of mine on the Isle of Mark with a side by side using a punchy load. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not going to use it on the geese. I am going to borrow one of Toby's guns for the geese, but for the rest of it, I'm going to stick with my own gun and yeah we'll just see how it goes if it all falls apart then i just have an excuse to buy a new gun don't i (laughs) (laughs) very good yeah but yes uh i'm very excited about i have an amazing time and if the if the weather's not too bad that crossing can be really lovely but uh you know we've we've seen minky whales on that crossing but if it's awful then i'm really glad i'm not you on wednesday yeah is it possible to overdose on seasickness tablets (laughs) I've seen a lot of people take a lot of them on that trip. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, you'll have a laugh. Well, yeah, it's going to be great. Anyway, Chris, I, um, enough about us, I think. Who's joining us today? Yeah, definitely enough enough about us, considering who we got with us. Our guest today is, I reckon, actually put simply, the biggest name in shooting, and he barely needs an introduction. He's the only sportsman to win a world title in five different decades. He has a 30 clay shooting world titles in total he also holds the record for the longest shot in clay pigeon shooting at at 130 yards which is ridiculous he runs a game shoot at his farm in kent and i'm sure you've all guessed who it is we're absolutely honored to have none other than george digweed for this episode of the guns on pegs podcast welcome george Thank you. I'm just trying to work out how I've got mixed up in a podcast with two guys that shoot side by side. <laughs> George, you must own a side by side. One. Yeah, we use it for banging in cricket stumps on a hard day. <laughs> well, I mean, that might be all mine's any good for come next weekend. So, <laughs> Go on then, just really quick question. What was your first gun? My first gun was a uh, an old 20-bore pump gun uh, with a cuts compensator on the end. It was an old savage pump gun that my uh, my mother used to use years and years ago, rook shooting, when the rooks came out as branches on the nest, and that was transferred down to me. I'm not one of these big believers in starting off on a 410. Not that, not that I had any opportunity. I used to carry a 410 in the very, very early stages with no cartridges and had to unload it although there was nothing in it in the first place before I got <laughs> over a fence and yeah. was told to do the right thing. So I'm, I'm a big believer in all of that. I think that that training and, and being part of whatever you're doing and an enforced captive environment is very good for the uh, the training of the young person. I think too much too quick can be uh, counterproductive. 
it's like a dog. I, I keep being told, don't don't let your dog off on any game on its first day. Just sort of go round on the lead, even for the first season. And so that's kind of like you going around with a broken gun, not being able to shoot any, just le- learning the etiquette. Yeah, but but you know, look, you know, we pride ourselves as a sport on the fact that uh, you know we have a brilliant safety record. We teach how to conform in a perfect manner. And if part of that is having a year at the start with no cartridges in the gun, learning a safety technique, and no one gets injured at the end of it for the whole of your shooting life, I think that's a, a small price to pay. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, well, I think we're going to come on to a similar sort of subject uh, later on, Chris. I think we'll we'll rattle on. Um, and, George, if I can ask you, what's that you're drinking? I have got, actually, a cup of tea with me. I'm not a massive drinker anyway, and and throughout the early years of my career, I spent most of it dry because I was a big believer that when you're competing, if you go on a massive bender at the weekends and and that sort of thing, then it probably stays in the system. Well, a lot of World and European Championships we shoot were Thursday starts, and I just never wanted to take the opportunity of having alcohol in the system that could affect my performance so I stayed dry used to have a pint at the end of cricket if I uh, if I played which I thoroughly enjoyed and I enjoy a nice glass of red wine after game shooting during the season now but apart from that I very rarely drink fair enough that's that's not like our George uh, no, I have no such qualms. Um, but then I don't compete at international level. Yeah, I can understand that entirely. So go on then, George, your, your, your tea of choice. Have you got a preference? Uh, oh, um, no, 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 yes. No, we're, we're asking, we're asking oh, George. Oh, the other did George. We? I knew this would happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, when he said tea of choice, it might have given it away. Yeah. <laughs> no, just, just proper builder's tea. It, uh, you know, as strong as it comes. When you've got a self-like figure like mine, you just you can't drink too much Earl Grey. I didn't think you'd be an Earl Grey in the afternoon, man. Although having said that, I don't know whether anybody's ever tried in a teapot two cups of builder, two bags of uh, builder's tea and a bag of Earl Grey. It is a beautiful taste. Oh my goodness! Oh, cocktails. This is that's something I've never tried, and I'm a big I'm an afternoon Earl Grey person. Builder's tea in the morning, so I'm going to have to try this at lunchtime. Honestly, it is. Um, it's you'll be surprised. <laughs> okay, you learn something new every day. <laughs> George Brown, what's that you're drinking? Uh, well, I slight change of tack for me compared to usual episodes because I think I might be drinking quite a lot of whiskey over the rest of this week. So I've actually got a beer. I've got a Butcombe Gold, which is a golden ale from Bristol. No particular attachment to it, but uh, it's in the fridge. It's going to upset some people that it was in the fridge, but it was, uh, and it's very nice and cold and refreshing, and I'm enjoying it. It's really good. Did you just find that in a supermarket? No, actually, uh, it was given to me by my sister-in-law, apropos of nothing very much. I was just hoping for a cheap excuse there to have a dig back at you. (laughs) (laughs) Chris, what have you got? So you know how people from Yorkshire think their shooting is the best and Devon think their shooting is the best? What I've done is like, I've tried to blend them in my drink. So I've got <laughs> I've got gin and tonic, and I've never had the same combo of gin and tonic or even the same gin on a podcast. I've got a Sulcum gin from Devon, and I've combined it with our friends from Raythorpe, their Yorkshire tonic. Uh, 
So I've, I've blended each end of the country in a drink, and it makes for a really nice drink. So Very nice. What are the characteristics of the gin? I don't even go there. <laughs> it tastes like gin and tonic and a nice one. What do you got? Lemon, lime, orange? Uh, well, I put some lemon in it, so I'm definitely getting a bit of lemon through. <laughs> I honestly, I can't do this. I can't even do this with wine, and I really like my wine. But I just, I just know what I'm drinking. I enjoy it, and I can remember it. But that's about it. That's all that really matters. There's two types of drink, right? Ones that you like, and ones that you don't. <laughs> exactly. Excellent. Right. Well, I think we're pretty well set to move on now, George. This segment that we're about to do is called "Whose Bird Is It Anyway," and it's our first bit of listener correspondence. We ask our listeners to send in their shooting quandaries and questions and dilemmas and that kind of thing this one comes from somebody i've decided to call aurelius we keep them anonymous um and aurelius has written dear george and chris i've just had a fabulous day with barney stratton at his Bollington shoot 150 birds managed beautifully over five longish drives the family syndicate was really pleased i was inspired to book because i listened to the partridge episode on the podcast so thank you My question is this. My wife has asked today for five pocket reasons why shooting is a good thing. She often explains to her friends that shooting is my principal hobby and comes under fire, so to speak. And then he adds here brackets, we live in London. Can you give me five short talking points with the odd stats that she can learn? I'm thinking maybe benefit to the rural community. Do we have an idea of the economic size of the industry and the rural and conservation habitat impacts, etc.? I thought you might be able to summarize better than me. So if you get two sex, it would be really appreciated. This is a good one. I'm sure Basque would do like a little pocket business card of like uh, pocket ammo for defending shooting. That's a really good idea. <laughs> Mr. Digweed, you're, uh, I'm sure you found yourself in a position having to justify game shooting before. What's your go-to lines? I enjoy it. that's a really good place to start especially if you live in london well uh, look at the end of the day we can we can all bang on about you know lots of different things but at the end of the day um you have to have a passion for it if you have a passion for it the uh the countryside will benefit from it anyway you 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 only got to look at the amount of young birds and and songbirds and linnets and everything else that come out of cover crops the, the benefit to the rural economy, I've spent the last week in Scotland and the benefit to the rural economy there from fishing, we had three days on the Tweed and, you know, just the local hotels and everything else. We had a week of sort of indifferent weather the week before, which raised the river level up a bit. Um, obviously, everybody thought the, the fish were going to start to run and every rod on every beat on every part of the river was full. You know, it just goes to show that people do look at stats and do look at the fact that, you know, there's a good chance the salmon could have run. And, you know, that is exactly the same where it's grouse shooting, which is a totally wild bird. You know, the the places like the CB Inn and the middle of Yorkshire and everything else, their whole season uh, is surrounding whether the grouse season is going to work or not. And there would be... There would be hundreds of places cross country that that you know that would that would be in line for. Not only that, the rural economy. How many how many keepers um, are employed in shooting? How many wives of keepers are employed in the service industry in big houses where guns are staying? 
how many people are employed in the local pub because the guns are in there drinking? You know, where do you draw a line? Yeah, so, well, there's, there's two things I wanted to say to the back of that. So the, the employment one, the last time the PASEC, so it was called PASEC because PASEC did some analysis into the value of shooting. That survey is being redone at the moment, so we're going to get the stats next year. But off that survey back in 2014, the equivalent of 75,000 full-time jobs in shooting. So there's the first bit of ammo for this person. And exactly as George says there, there's just so much of that. And it goes on and on and on. I just want to give one example. I once got in a cab at Durham Station to go over to a grouse moor. And I was chatting to the cabbie. And I said, oh, do you do many of these journeys? And he said, you won't believe it. We make £1,000 a day just doing trips to the moor lodges. Wow. From Durham Station. I was like, what? And he said, the other reason is, and this is really interesting. It's quite ridiculous, but interesting. He said, the reason is lots of people want to get their own cabs so they can carry on doing business calls and whatnot. <laughs> I was like, ridiculous, but I mean, the cab company's having a laugh. That's brilliant. <laughs> Amazing. That PASEC report, I can never quite remember what the number is. It did sort of have a stab at working out what the total economic impact is, didn't it? Back then it was... 1.6 billion to the UK economy and 2.2 overall. But 2014, shooting was quite a bit smaller than it is now. And there's been quite a bit of inflation. That figures, I mean, I don't think you'd be wrong if you said 2 billion to the UK economy. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, I would say, I would say nearer three. I mean, to put it in perspective, when the 2014 figure came out, I remember looking at it and the motorhome and caravan market was 1.4. You know how many of those bloody things you see on the road? Would that take <laughs> into account, uh, and you'd have to include it, would that take into account small do-it-yourself syndicates? Yeah, it tried to take everything into account, but it is, I mean, obviously it's very tough. Thousands and thousands of people filled out the survey, and having just done this one, which took about 25 minutes to fill out, <laughs> the labour of love, they do get a lot of info. Chris, do you remember, it must have been around sort of COVID time, you and I looking at some stats, and I think we worked out that something like 100,000 bottles of slow gin are consumed every season. <laughs> it was that, wasn't it? It was an God. enormous number. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I've actually been looking at some of the stats from the census for an article that we put out last week on the conservation side of things. So by my calculations, and it's all estimates, but I reckon about a third of the UK is under management for shooting of some sort, 22 million acres. Did uh, I, I need to just, I almost want to go in my emails and check this. The GWCT uh, was sending out something this morning because they were looking at obviously the impact of bird flu. And I think they have it as two thirds, but keep going. Wow. Um, so, so this is just based off census data, so it could well be bigger. Last year, nearly half a million acres of cover crops were planted. Um, 4 million acres of woodland under management uh, for shooting and 60,000 acres of new woodland were planted last year for shooting or by shoots, I suppose I should say. So, you know, in terms of conservation, that is just huge. Right. So to help this person in their question, George Digweed's first answer is the best one. I'd go first. Right. When someone almost starts to question what you're doing, First of all, because I enjoy it. I like that. <laughs> That's got to be the best place to start. Then what would you go next? Conservation or economic? What do people understand more of? Probably economics, unfortunately. Yeah, I think economics is always a really strong, strong argument, especially right now, you know. 
So two billion to the UK economy, potentially a lot more. Uh, as George was saying, closer potentially close to three. Conservation, loads and loads and loads of it because of obviously the what what's required to run a shoot and the feed you have to put out. I also think you've got to look at diversity as well. It's not just UK people travelling around UK shooting. I would say that, especially now the pound's dropped to the level that it's dropped to, I would say that probably, I wouldn't know the figure exactly at the moment, but I would say that in recent times it's probably been 25% foreign participation. And if the pound stays where it is, it'll probably go to 50%. This is true. I forget about that impact. Yeah, so it's effectively an export in that situation, isn't yeah, it? Absolutely right. And then and then it's not just that, you know, they come over, they've forgotten their boots, they buy a pair of boots. They, they're always, you know, buying sticks, they're buying hats, they go into a, a, a gun shop, they will buy loads of different clothing because the clothing's modelled and styled so very differently here as it is in, as if I went to Austria and one, I could find something that fitted, um, you'd buy one of those Austrian shooting suits because they look absolutely amazing and they're different. That's so true. I forgot about the exchange rate differences. Obviously, the price has gone up a lot. Probably, well, we did know what, what was the figure, like over 20%. Oh, yeah. But 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 the exchange rate for, for the dollar to the pound has come back the same amount in recent weeks as well. So, so last since last season, it's basically the same price as it was if you're from the US. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Uh, in answer to the question uh, about the amount of UK landscape, shooting is involved in the management of two-thirds of the UK's rural landscapes, according to GWCT. That's huge. Right, there we go. So, that yeah, that's some pretty good ammo, I reckon. Yes. And I'm going to message Basque about doing a little thing for your pocket yeah that'd be such a good thing just to have in your in your wallet like a little business card size thing with some stats on it it'd be amazing right so next up we've got unpopular opinions chris what have we got this time so this one comes from someone we shall call edward who writes uh, my unpopular opinion needs some explaining i recently started using the oculus 2 virtual reality headset to play a game called clay hunt pro the game simulates clay pigeon, actual pigeon decoying, and pheasant shooting in an immersive 3D environment. You hold the controllers in a normal shotgun stance, reload in a lifelike manner, and it's rather accurate from a lead standpoint. I'm not a typical gamer and appreciate most people in our world are not either. I've been a keen shot for around 15 years. I also run my family shoot, which involves hosting days and shooting on the syndicate. Over the years, I've seen various people shoot, whether as a neighbouring peg, spectator, or from a shoot captain's perspective. The gun's capabilities can vary, but what I see regularly are over-eager shooters stuffing carts into the guns like, like mad, try, trying to throw some shot at the next bird or trim the tail feathers off one that was over their head while reloading. Game shooting is not pest control, so why do these people load as if they were decoying in Trafalgar Square? Stuffing, as he refers to it in this way, is an unattractive trait. It always causes concern for the keeper as it's akin to greed. Therefore, shooting is uneven along the line, which makes the day harder to manage, So, as they may hit their bag early or shoot too many. It may also be unsafe due to neglect where the barrel is waving. I believe stuffing is caused by a lack of time in the field outside of the shoot day. Shooting clays is great, but most guns only go a few times a year outside of game shooting. They are so keen to get the rounds off they forget the etiquette and neglect others around them which leads me to my question or opinion 
I think that if guns were to practice privately at home on a virtual reality game for 20 minutes a day, like I have, they would relax more on a shoot day and not be so trigger happy. This would arguably be more beneficial than a handful of sessions on the playground. Or is our network stuck in its ways and many would prefer to carry on the stressful act of stuffing rather than releasing some of the anguish on a simulator? What are your thoughts? Mr. Digweed. Well, is he referring to stuffing as having a loader that stuffs for you? No, I don't think he is. I think he's using it, you know, to, to, to describe the sort of frantic way in which people reload when there's a flush. Mm. But I suppose the same thing could happen by having a stuffer with you. Well, yeah, I, I'm I'm of the opinion that um, whilst whilst I think stuffing is as quick as as double gunning after the first four shots, uh, both of those practices allow the gun to remain looking forward. Now, a lot of what he's talking about there, hitting stuff up the arse and hitting it in the tail and everything else, is caused by the fact that the gun tries to shoot a bird behind and then never gets back forward if there's a big flush coming because his next bird is always behind him. So for me, stuffing and, and double gunning allows the, the gun that's actually shooting just to remain his focus forward where he can see everything's coming. And then you're looking at the vital part of the bird, i.e. the head, neck, wings, that you're actually going to you know kill it with. I, I'm in total agreement with you. That I, I and I've definitely been in a situation where it just takes the edge off. It takes the pressure off looking forward, having someone stand with you. And my dad always used to say that women are the best stuffers in the world. Definitely quickest for the hats. <laughs> <laughs> we can't broadcast that. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, the point. I think what this chap's getting at here, though, is eagerness. So, like being super excited on the peg, and therefore just kind of loosing off shot in the air just because they are excited so what he's saying is that if you sort of take if you practice and you find yourself in that position with like muscle memory as it were more then you're not going to get so excited and do the wrong thing yeah i think it's actually a really interesting point because you should with a certain amount of practice be able to reload from your pocket or from your cartridge belt or whatever without looking down at the gun right it's not a big movement but I mean, I've definitely been in that situation, you know, particularly shooting at home where, you know, you might only get two or three opportunities to drive where you know that more are on their way and you sort of fumble and you get a cartridge the wrong way up or whatever. And it can be, you know, you can definitely kind of fall into that trap of rushing it and therefore actually reloading slower than you would have done if you'd just been a bit calmer about it. Mm. And I bet that any, you know, most people who've been shooting a fair bit would probably be able to reload with their eyes closed. Well, not if you're shooting a side by side. <laughs> I think loading a side by side is easier. Well, it was because you don't want to pull the trigger on it. <laughs> you take it nice and slow. Look, in all walks of life, when we're shooting, I mean, nobody sees it more than me. I mean, I, you know, we run commercial shooting all the time. And, and I think what, what your um, listener is alluring to is probably a bit of greediness from someone that has taken a day shooting and wants to make sure they get their money's worth. I don't think in any combination that you can talk about, you're going to stop that. And, and, I, and I think that that's why 
people shooting within a within a self-policing group which would turn around to the guy and say look hang on a minute you know let's just calm this down this is what we're at we all know roughly you know if you're a an eight gun line shooting just over 300 you're due 40 each um and if you want to shoot five drives you know you've got a you know, if you've shot 12 on the first drive, you know you're going to have a drive where you're either not going to get much shooting or you're going to have to limit yourself Yeah. unless you want to really upset your mates all the time. So greediness within anything we do, whether it be in the restaurant trade, whether it be work, whether we, you know, is always there. It's just how you manage it. Uh, George, what do you think about this this practice element? Because obviously... I mean, we've talked about this before on the podcast, haven't we, Chris, that, that lots of game shots don't go for shooting lessons. They don't go to the clay ground. They do just turn up on the 1st of November or whatever and expect to be able to do it again. Is there? Do you think there'd be any value in practicing things like reloading in the comfort of your own home, whether it's virtual reality or you know, with you know, a couple of spent shells or something? No, I, reloading, definitely not. Gun mounting... 100% yes. So I've been taking, uh, on a sort of more game shooting basis, uh, a lot of the people that shoot with me coaching during the summer uh, based on, you know, predominantly driven type targets and and birds that may be going over your neighbour if they're that way inclined. But... For me, the the only way you can practice at home is to mount on a dot on a mirror and then not lie to yourself. So if you look down the gun, you're looking at a, a sharpie dot on a mirror, level with your eye, and that that in itself will teach you whether you're mounting the gun correctly or not. Loading is is irrelevant and you're gonna be as quick or as or as slow as you you want to make out and how your day's going. But definitely, definitely, definitely the benefits of doing once a month or once every six weeks out of season will enhance, without question, your game shooting experience at the end of the season because you will be more au fait with your guns You'll have, if you've got a, the right person teaching you, you'll have more of an idea of what you're doing. And, uh, you know, it can only lead to a more accomplished performance, which is what everybody wants to see in the field because we're dealing with live birds. Just a little tip on loading. When you get to your peg, if, if you're loading from your pocket, like a big sort of shooting jacket, uh, give your pocket a shake for quite a bit. And you'll find that the shot, whether it's lead or steel, would drop to the bottom and the, and the sort of brass caps up. So when you're fumbling around, the chances of getting two in your hand the right way around increase dramatically. See, I've always tried that and I don't think it works. It definitely does. <laughs> I do it on, on all these like uh, flush days on these charity clay shoots. It's absolutely the only way to do it. <laughs> I think you need to get out more. <laughs> Noted, George. <laughs> right. So what do we think? Are we saying this is unpopular? Well, I, I think it could be in a sense, but I just wanted to ask George: Have you ever tried this virtual reality stuff? Uh, yes, in fact, I had somebody approach me from America with a with a clay system that he wanted me to promote, and he said that he was in 
Mark one stage, and then he wanted me to get involved for Mark two stage, and I never heard another word. Oh, really? uh, but the Mark one stage was, I have to say, pretty realistic. And I think with those sort of things and the gaming side of it, you know, looking as though it's going to take off, and you know, there is people, there are people now competing against each other in gaming events for vast sums of money with huge crowds in theatres and and cinemas watching. So, look, who's to say that there could be a virtual clay shoot in the next few years? And it's very possible. There's got to be, isn't there? You're absolutely right. Like, you look at F1 and stuff like that, it's gone mad. This kit this guy's talking about here, I think it's only 350 quid. 250. 250. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. The guy uh, was an American guy, and it was... It was pretty serious stuff, what he was showing to us. But um, it, the other thing was I didn't have it on for very long because we were competing in the World Championships. And um, when you put it on, it, you you sort of disorientate yourself for a little bit. And when I had to go out and shoot, I didn't really uh, want to disorientate myself a couple of hours before. So, yeah. And my mate Jamie Brightman put it on, and and he was uh, he was seriously impressed to the point where, you know, the gun actually dropped out of your shoulder. You 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 had it on a, um, a basically a blank tri gun, but you could break the gun, and when you broke the gun, it actually broke on the screen as well. So, yeah, it was pretty uh, pretty advanced stuff. I think the people that ed- uh, that make this kit here are doing um, some. Ad- they're making some bits that you can chuck them in the end, the barrel of your own gun, so you can use your own gun at home on this. Oh right! Oh, now that's cool. I mean, it is only going one way, though, isn't it? In ten years' time, this stuff's going to be insane. It's going to it. It will be as close to going to the playground. It just won't have a bunch of the things that George was alluding to. Right. So, what are, what, are we? I th- are we saying this is unpopular? Like reloading is a matter of the manner in which you reload is a matter of greed, not a matter of practice. I'm in agreement with that comment. I don't, I don't, it doesn't matter how many times you get out. Like if, oh, actually it does. That's the point. If you get out lots, you are much calmer on the peg, but most people don't get out that much because it's very difficult to do so. So you will just get excited. George, what do you reckon? Yeah, I don't know. As I said, I think, I think it's people trying to get, make sure they get their value for money and perhaps someone else's. And, um, if it had been yeah. on, on a syndicate with us, they might have had their ear bent. <laughs> good. Well, I, I, maybe, Chris, this is a good moment to talk about another virtual reality thing. So, Should we do that now? Yeah, go on, because we've been plotting and scheming. Someone wrote in, one of the members of the Order of the Garters wrote in and said, 50th episode, boys, you're coming up to it. Is it going to be live? Because we'll come down, we'll do something. And he suggested Clay's Bar which I don't know if it had come after the back of when we had Georgina Roberts on. Yeah, yeah, he'd listened to the episode with Georgina Roberts. So Clay's Bar in London, 50th episode. Uh, so George and I got together and, uh, and, and looked at each other's diaries and thought 4th of November, which is a Friday evening, or Friday evening it's going to take place, um, we are hosting our 50th episode live in Clay's Bar, which is on Moorgate near Liverpool Street, the City of London. And it's going to be 
a basically a good old get together, a total laugh. We're going to record a pod during it, but that's only going to make up part of the evening. Everyone's there for drinks and obviously having a go on the shooting simulators. So this bar is somewhere they've got sort of they call pegs around the bar and each one's got a sort of shooting simulator set up. And I'm sure we'll get some sort of a podcast competition going and there'll be some garters up for grabs, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, definitely. So we'll get there. What time are we going to get there, George? Well, know. we'll probably be there from the afternoon, won't we? So just to get the tech set up. So from sort of like 5 p.m., come along. We'll record a podcast in the evening. We've got we've got a private room and capacity for just short of 100 people. So enough for a really good atmosphere. Uh, so if you're around, just come along. There's no need to RSVP. No need to... Well, do let us know if you're coming. That would be nice. It would be nice to gauge how many people might come. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there's no guest list or anything like that. Everyone is welcome. Bring along a mate or two, especially someone that hasn't shot. This is virtual reality stuff here, so we can give everyone a go. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be really good fun. And you know, hopefully we'll do a slightly better job of recording the live bit than we did last time. Hopefully record all of it rather than just... <laughs> three quarters it's not in a field so they've actually got tech there so we'll be all right <laughs> but yeah it's gonna be really good fun and we'll get hopefully some of the previous podcast guests and lots of members of the order of the garter and all that kind of thing along and just have a few drinks and shoot yeah. some virtual clays and generally have fun uh mr digweed have you been to clays bar in london no and i'm a no for that night as well i'm away i'm unfortunately ah no a shocker I'd have been there in a shop, <laughs> especially with my not drinking. Sounds like a perfect place. Yeah, that's that's a way to win a clay competition, isn't it? By like yeah. midnight, just turn up sober. And <laughs> <laughs> right. So next up, we have got shooting heroes. Chris, what have we got? This one comes from Toby, who is the son of an existing member of the Order of the Garters and is just six years old, so he already wins our Youngest Correspondent Award. He says, Dear George and Chris, there's absolutely no way he said that. I'm guessing a parent said that. Well, I, I'll sh- have, you, have you not seen it? He, it's a handwritten letter that he's written us, that his dad has taken a photo of and sent to us. We'll have to put it on Instagram or something, but it's amazing. It's so nice. Amazing. Anyway, he says, Dear George and Chris, I'd like, like to nominate our gamekeeper, Dan, as a shooting hero. Dan allows me to go beating on shoot days with him, waving my flag, whacking my stick and shouting, aye, aye. Dan lets me collect the cartridges after each drive, count the birds and hang them in the chiller. I'm not allowed a radio yet. <laughs> <laughs> Dan also pays me £5 every time I go beating with him. My parents make me save my beating money. I'm allowed to buy toys with some of the money saved and I also use some of the money for new shoot day clothes. Dan does swear a lot. My <laughs> mummy and daddy say that that's just a gamekeeper. <laughs> but you must never repeat what Dan says or anything else you hear on the Beats' wagon. <laughs> or on the Guns on Pegs podcast, for that matter. Yeah. I really look forward to shoot days, riding on the tractor, eating chocolates and having fun with my dog. I really hope you read my letter as Dan is a shooting hero. My mummy says Dan would suit wearing pink garters. <laughs> oh that's an epic letter (laughs) i think that's Um, genuinely my favorite piece of correspondence we've ever had yeah i i wasn't six when i got out beating but not a lot older and i can relate to a lot of what he says here i can relate to the swearing bit (laughs) (laughs) my in-laws thought my dog was called kinnell when they first turned up at the shoot (laughs) (laughs) there was a mate of my dad's who had a, a dog called oi he said it saved time. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, 
I can certainly remember the the excitement of being out on a shoot day, you know, a similar sort of age to that, I'd have thought. And just the it's the whole experience is sort of it sort of makes you vibrate with excitement. And and you know, I definitely was sort of ditched with you know, my dad was always on the peg and I was definitely ditched with the beaters and, and the keeper and you know I think uh, apart from anything else it's sort of a, a free babysitting service isn't it <laughs> very good but yeah or I think Dan definitely definitely deserves some garters don't you think definitely. do you not think that that transgresses now as the more we go forward I mean you know you talk about excitement uh, the reality is that I get excited every time I go out it's just where I'm going and and what I'm doing allows a certain amount more of excitement. So I was very lucky in the fact that I was able to shoot some driven grouse this week or last week. And um, the excitement level on a morning when you know you're going to shoot driven grouse far outweighs that of going and shooting pheasant shooting. As much as I love pheasant shooting and partridge shooting, whatever, driven grouse, because we can't do it that often. Yeah. And I think that because you've never done it that much at six years of age, you probably keep that same excitement all the way through, but we've just done it more, so it becomes you're able to deal with it more. But when you get the opportunity to do something that you don't do very often, I think that that level of excitement at six years of age is still there. Mm, Definitely true. And the other thing, I mean, that childish excitement never seems to go away. It's definitely noticeable to me that, people who in day-to-day life are quite sort of straight-laced and sensible turn into sort of giddy teenagers when they go out on a shoot day, you know, the morning of a shoot day, the morning of the the night before, I'm definitely guilty of getting carried away. You know, we all sort of regress back to our childhood when we, when we sort of getting ready for a day out, right? I couldn't agree more. And for me, it's the night before. It's arriving at a hotel with a bunch of mates the night before shoot day, I think is my peak excitement. That's that's like the moment when it's just like, and no wonder people drink too much the night before a shoot. It's because hey, you haven't seen anyone in uh, everyone in ages and get together, and then you're all excited about the next day. Oh, it's just so good. Yeah, wonderful. So fantastic letter, Toby. Thank you very much. And so, of course, you, Toby, along with Aurelius, Edward, Dan, the keeper, and of course now you, George, are all members of the most noble order of the garters and will very soon be in receipt of your very own set of the highly exclusive, highly desirable Guns on Pegs podcast shooting sock garters. If you too have got a shooting confession, quandary or query you'd like us and our guests to help you with, or an unpopular opinion, or you want to nominate a shooting hero and you'd like a set of the garters, do drop us an email to pod at gunsonpegs.com. And actually just a note on the the Clay's Bar evening as well, the, the format we're still working on a little bit for the live podcast, but it will have a similar one to the Game Fair live podcast with lots of listener correspondence so do get yours sent in well in advance audience interaction yeah Yeah, i'm looking forward to yeah some of the outrageous comments yeah so uh before we move on it's time for the final installment of our barbecue recipe mini series with dan cooper uh, head grill master at weber dan welcome back what have you got this time Oh, thank you for having me. So um, this time I'm talking about a bit of a one-pot wonder. This is a classic game chili recipe, and this can really incorporate any type of game, but works best with if we're talking about game birds with the leg meat, and if we're talking venison, it's best with shoulder. So I think that 
you know, often you don't quite know what's in, in the bottom of the freezer and you want to have a bit of a clear out. And that's where this recipe could be really, really handy because it's, <laughs> it, you can use a bit of everything. And it's really a kind of, yeah, it kind of takes the sort of game pie filling to another level, if you know what I mean. Um, but we're kind of giving it a bit of a Mexican twist. So I cooked this this summer. I was down in Dorset. We rented a, a little barn as a holiday house type thing, barn conversion with some friends. And we had some friends come come over and we were hosting and we had about 16 people and I cooked this recipe on my barbecue. And um, a lot of the people I invited, they shoot regularly and they deal with a lot of venison. And they were really surprised by the flavor of it. And I'm going to let you into a little secret. So um, <laughs> first of all, I cooked it on my charcoal grill. Um, so I, I took the, the, um, the venison. I had venison shoulder. And I just, with a knife, broke it down. So it's smaller than uh, dice, but bigger than mince. Okay, so that's the okay. size yeah. I'm looking for. Yeah. Um, now, when I come to, I marinate the meat before I cook it. And I'm using something called a chote paste. Now, a lot of people are going to be raising their eyebrows thinking, oh, another fancy ingredient <laughs> that we have to look for. Uh, and it, it's not that easy to get hold of. I know you can buy it on that Amazonian shop, if you know what I mean. <laughs> but, but basically, um, it's not uh, available at the supermarket, but it's an absolutely amazing ingredient. So a chote paste is um, made essentially from the anato seed, which is basically a little Mexican shrub, grows in North America, and it's a kind of very sort of rusty red color gives a lovely color to the to the food and it's got a real depth of flavor and i now use it in all my mexican cooking it's unbelievable and i i know what it's like when people reel off these recipe these ingredients that you've never heard of um and it's but it really does make a huge difference it just tastes amazing so if you can get hold of some um so we, i just t with the uh, chote paste with the meat i had a little bit of olive oil and some garlic and a bit of extra oregano and um and some cumin and chili and let that really just soak into the meat for a few hours and then i cook that in a dutch oven so i'm using a big cast iron pot called a dutch oven in my barbecue and um the other secret ingredient is wood smoke so we want to bring smoke into the into the um, party as well. So I use some beech wood just to smoke the meat. So we're using the lid of the barbecue uh, down. So it's all covered, no, no lid on the pot of the Dutch oven. I just smoked the meat for about 20 minutes and then um, added the tomatoes and the onions, um, uh, everything else, and then just let it very gently cook away for a good few hours. Um, also with some lovely red kidney beans in there until I had a beautiful, slow kind of bubbling chili, which just was really full of flavor. And I served that in some toasted white corn tacos with uh, some nice sort of crispy slaw and um, a nice spicy sauce and some chopped coriander. And yeah, everyone loved it. And it was, um, I think, again, it's just one of those things, bringing strong flavor to game is is a real winner, I think. And if you're if you're happy to bring that flavor in and, and you want that spice, you know, go for it. <laughs> Don't be That's, afraid. It sounds so good. I'm just thinking like a frosty November shoot day, sort of 11s is just a little kind of hors d'oeuvre size, you know, like on a tiny little tortilla. It'd just be fantastic. Yeah, it's oh, a definite all-year-round dish, that, isn't it? Yeah, yeah 100%. And it, you don't need to make it into a taco. You could have it with rice or you could, um, 
you know make some empanadas or whatever whatever you like really so yeah it would it would work it's, spot on it's so good I, i've just quickly been onto the amazonian and i've seen that it's two pounds <laughs> 60 this stuff okay so uh, so there's no excuses there it's readily available it's not on prime but anyway it's, it's like couple of days uh but the the thing that stood out for me there it's just so good talking to you because it's challenged like the way i do things like when i get the barbecue out i'm so one-dimensional like probably most people i'm guessing you've got standard go-to items don't you and 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 if i was to do the the, the recipe you just described i wouldn't do it on the barbecue i just wouldn't think of it but this is this is brilliant i'm out of my comfort zone now and i need to sort of ride this wave yeah, I think so. And some people would say, well, what's the point of doing it on the barbecue? But actually bringing that wood smoke into the um, into the recipe, which you can't do in an oven or in a pan, um, just really makes such a difference. That depth of flavor, the authenticity of the of the dish. And that's one of the things that the other sort of Mexican ingredient that people bang on about at the moment it seems anyway is is chipotle or chipotle or however you're supposed to say it which is smoked chili isn't it so it's got that kind of smokiness to it anyway so you can see how doing something like this on the barbecue bringing that wood smoke into it plus you know fire and game and smoke and game always go well together so it it seems to make sense on several levels oh 100 percent. yeah the chipotle the ancho chilies all those different chilies that you can bring into the flavor and also these recipes would have originally been cooked over wood fires so we're just like i said we're trying to we're bringing it back to that authentic taste and it, and it really really makes a difference dan honestly thank you so much for for coming on and, and these last few episodes and sharing us with your recipes and tips this is such a this is an awesome segment i love it uh but all, all good things have to come to an end but uh well i suppose we'll just have to do it again next summer Absolutely. Yeah, I can't wait. And I'll be working on some new recipes, hopefully, that we can share with your lovely listeners. Okay, Great. Thanks ever so much, Dan. Yeah, cheers. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Bye. Good. George, over to you now. So I want to know, <laughs> straight out there, you're obviously world famous for being a clay shop, but which is better, clay or game? Oh, nothing comes close. I'm a game shop that goes clay shooting and has been very lucky to... to uh, have a means to an end from one side effect of a of a passion that is the countryside. That's so cool. <laughs> it is pretty cool, actually. Like a lot of a lot of clay shots, I think, are very clay focused. Right? Is that fair yeah. to say? Yeah, yeah. And I think, uh, uh, and you know, most wouldn't know the difference between a you know partridge and a missile thrush. But but if you if you spend time in the countryside and you're 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 taught. I was very lucky. I was very lucky in the fact that clay shootings opened some doors for me. And 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 years and years ago, when I was just starting off, and I was watching the best of the best. You'd watch the AJ Smiths, the Barry Simpsons, Duncan Lawtons, and and I came across probably the greatest living countryman that this country's ever seen in Philip Fussell. Mm. Um, and he took me under his wing a little bit and taught me more about the countryside than probably a hundred people could have done. And then following on from that, because I've, I've been able to achieve what I've been able to achieve. That's opened a lot more doors. I've been able to go to some really nice shoots. You meet the head keepers, you meet the under keepers, and you know when you have people loading for you, you just it's it's the the general coming together 
and gregariousness of country folk. And, and I love going out, sitting at the shoot and just sitting and watching. And you can see so much more. But the pace of life nowadays is people don't have time to sit and watch. So, you know, I, I, I'm very privileged in what I do. Clay shooting uh, has given me a means to an end and, and I've had a fantastic time doing it. I wouldn't you know, run clay shooting down at all. I've had an amazing time and I've still got the desire to travel all around the world doing it now. But but I'm a game shooter that goes clay shooting, not a clay shooter that, that goes game shooting. And George, you mentioned a few days on the grouse. Have you got a favourite quarry? No, I haven't got a favourite quarry. I think we enjoy grouse shooting as much as we do one for the pure challenge in a wind. I mean, they are, you know, we wouldn't shoot it any, any faster. But I think, I think for me, it's, it's the coming back to the gregariousness of it again, it's the team you're shooting with. It's not all about, as Philip always told me when I was a youngster, I used to look at him like he was a complete buffoon. And he used to say to me, it's not all about pulling the trigger. Yeah. And and I thought, well, there's everything about pulling the trigger, but it's not. It's it's you know, pulling the trigger is a percentage of it. Uh, but it's everything else that goes on in it and it's meeting the shoot staff on the day, it's mingling with the beaters, it's mingling with the pickers up and not being above it that you you can't do that. So true. It's uh for me it's all about the day, where you are. One thing I don't like is when I is is, you know, going to somewhere that doesn't have an understanding of wind and they don't really look as though they're trying. They're just going through the motions for you. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's a very, very expensive sport. And whether you're a guest or whether you're paying for it, it's costing someone a lot of money. And when you've got a left to right howling gale and they put you on one thing I, you know, I never put a peg out at the shoot. Everything is placed according to the wind that day. You know, you stand on a line of pegs that have been stood there, whether you've got an east, a northeast, a southwest, a south. You're never moved. And one and eight get all the shooting, or one and two or seven or eight get all the shooting. And the rest of them stand there picking their nose just to me, is, in, is not good enough. I remember in the early days of Guns on Pegs, we got invited to this shoot in Norfolk. And I stood on a hill, uphill from the drive, with with the wind piling into my back. as <laughs> so we're going to try and push these partridges over us. And I remember standing there, and I, was, I can't comment. This was years ago. I hadn't got the experience I've got now of like seeing lots of different shoots. But it was just obvious that this was going to go really, really badly. And I find it so frustrating. I mean, I, I don't know why people would do that. It's Surely there's another way around. <laughs> Look, it's, it's, a, it's a unique industry when anybody can actually run a shoot, really. You know, if they, if they believe they're good enough to run a shoot, then that's fine. But once it becomes a commercial transaction, if they're, if they're running a shoot and everybody's their guest and it doesn't really matter, it doesn't, it, you know, it matters not a jot. But, but once it becomes a commercial transaction and people are paying for the sport, you should have an inkling of how to bring the birds on and how to show them and everything else. Yeah. On to clay shooting for a minute. I mean, the bit I mentioned at the start amazes me. The, you've won a world title in five different decades and you're the only person to have done that. I mean, that is genuinely staggering. On the basis that you've 
recently won your 30th world title, which is the World English Sporting and Championship in Texas. Was that back in April, wasn't it? Or April or May? What I want to know, though, is how, how on earth are you still winning so much when people that you're competing with are genuinely half your age and only just got into it? How have you still got going? Experience counts for, for a lot. Look, all sport is an ability to perform under pressure as one would do in practice. And there's a lot of people with a lot of time on their hands now, disposable income, disposable time, people shooting far, far more than I I would you know, consider shooting. But if your technique is sound and you have an ability to be able to perform in a pressure situation, your eyesight's good, you're mentally fit, I mean, it's a good job I'm not doing 100 metres, otherwise it might not have been five decades. But, (laughs) you know, the the reality is that, you know, I feel as I can still go out and perform against the the best. I I, I, One thing I will say is the older I've got, I've definitely this year found a large need to manage my diary for next year uh, because I am... 58 and not 28 and when I was 28 I used to you know be somewhere in the world every weekend yeah um, and you could do it and you're getting off planes and your time zones and your different dietary requirements in countries and everything else and now I'm you know I sort of I won the world championships in America and I got back on the Wednesday and on the Thursday I went to Hungary and I had six and a half hours coming back from America in time change and then two hours going to Hungary. So come the end of the week, I was shooting in a World Cup event with an eight-hour time difference. Oh, my God. God. That's tough. And, and it's how, just... How did he get on, though? Um, I won the seniors and was third overall and lost it by, uh, I think, one target. But, I mean, look, that's that's irrelevant, but... You know, you because you're out there, you just got to break targets. But it's not as easy as it was 20 years ago, shall we say? Yeah, yeah, fair yeah. enough. Uh, you sort of touched on it a little bit, but like, I, it's always struck me that clay shooting—it's almost like a kind of precision sort of sport in that regard. How important is the mental aspect to success at the top level? Uh, unless you're, unless you've got a, a, you know, the mental attitude to win. You won't win. And, you know, I've seen a lot of people. There's a prime example. There's a guy, he's just won the World Compact in South Africa, and he's an Italian guy. And as a junior, he won the World Double Trap. And he's, he's you know, he's been very, very good. David Gasparini, been very, very good all through his career. And he took up sporting. He packed up shooting the Olympic disciplines, took up sporting, and he's used his precision in shooting the Olympic disciplines, and he's taken that forward in sporting, and he's he's shot some monster scores. But he was getting to the point where in the European compact this year, he shot the first 175 straight, and then he shot 23 in the last round and finished up not nearly winning a medal. Wow. Um, and he's done that two or three times when he hasn't won a medal having shot 174 or 175 straight, his last round's been a bad one and he's finished up not winning anything. Oh, God. So, so that's that's pressure. Yeah, but he's learned to deal with that pressure now. And this year, he was 
on 148 out of 150, and on the last day, shot the last 50 straight, so he finished it off and won it. And it's all, all a question of getting into those positions, and once you've got into those positions and then dealing with it. Do, do, do you find that you can ever beat people in terms of just being stronger mentally or almost getting one up on them? Could, could you play like mind games at all with other competitors? Years ago, definitely. Look, my drive is, whilst it's still there and I'm still representing the companies and that I'm sponsored by and everything else, I've still got the want to go and do it. But probably the drive isn't quite there. I mean, I've always said that I've won so many of them now that it actually devalues what I've won. And I and I think probably the reality of what I've achieved will only be recognised posthumously when people actually sit there and think, my God, did he actually do that? Because, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll never forget, I don't know, 10 years ago or whatever it was, and I walked into the local pub and we'd been in Spain for a week and it was absolutely blisteringly hot and I'd got quite a tan and there's a guy stood at the bar and he went, all right, how you doing? I said, yeah, not bad. And uh, he said, uh, where have you been then? He looked pretty brown. I said, oh, I've been in Spain. All right, what was that for? I said, well, championships. All right, win it. It's just as though it was bar conversation and, you know, it was a world championship and you're expected to go and win it. Well, 1,200 people from around the world would say that it's not bar talk and you're not expected to go yeah. and win it. I mean, that, that hunger is a really interesting point because, you know, Roger Federer retired over the weekend, I think probably mostly because his body gave up. And I've, it's something that's always baffled me about uh, elite sportsmen and women who've been at their top of the, at the top of their game for, you know, decades, won everything several times. Like, what is it about them that makes them want to go out and do it again? Because it got to hurt. It's, you know, the training, you know, the whole thing. There's surely at some point people go, well, you know, I've done that now. Move on. Um, what is what? What is it that's kept you going all this time? I think I think you're only as good as your last result, um, hmm. and that's very key. And I think most people that know we know me would know that I'm I'm pretty modest with it. I don't go and ram it down people's throats. What I've achieved, I let those I let those results do the talking themselves. You know, I come from an era because I'm that much older. I come from an era where, and I've you know I've said it in several different things, is that you know you we relied on the magazines. There was no social media. There was no mobile phones. There was no getting the scores on a Sunday night. You had to fill up with petrol on a Saturday afternoon to make sure you'd got enough fuel to get around all the clay shoots on a Sunday because no garages were open. Yeah, gosh. you know, and and so. You relied on the magazines to know where the shoots were. You relied on the magazines to know who'd won what shoots the previous month. It was only it was only word of mouth that you know told you any different. So, people in those days, their reputations were earned. They weren't earned on how many times you posted how good you were on social media. So I think I think nowadays there's a huge amount more shallowness with it all. And a lot of what's said social media-wise is actually sort of moved upon but needs to be taken more with a pinch of salt. Yeah. Um, and, I, you know, I look at it from a two-way – and all sponsorship 
is a two-way street. You have to be giving something to your sponsors for them to be giving to you. Whereas no relationship is one way. Be it in life, marriage, shooting, whatever, it's not one way. So you have to be giving to your sponsors. But I see on a Sunday night, the usual rounds is someone's been given a few cartridges by a sponsor and they go on to social media and they thank their sponsors for a new personal best of 71 out of 100. And, you know, my God, I was absolutely amazing today. And, well, <laughs> the last thing I would want as a sponsor is to see a picture of a scorecard with nearly as many noughts on it as kills. <laughs> and you know what I'm saying? And I, yeah. I, and, and I know they're doing it to try and keep up their social media presence and everything else, but I just think, well... They they got to try something to try and compete with you because they can't do what you do. So, <laughs> well, you know, I, I I've got no problem in people posting stuff, but I just think there needs to be a reality check on. You know, everybody nowadays is a legend, aren't they? Mm. And um, for me, there's been there's been probably two or three legends within shooting, and and. You know, most of those were from a long era ago. Yeah, yeah. It's really, really interesting. Uh, it's fascinating. I, m- I must get on to game shooting because obviously, as you mentioned right at the start of this little bit, that that's your, that's your initial passion. And and I mentioned at the start that you, you run a shoot. Did, did you call it, is the shoot called Owley Farm at home? Uh, it was the Owley shoot, yeah. Owley it was, shoot. Years ago, it was, it was um, Owley Farm, but it's all, it, it all got split up and everything else. We just we just maintain the uh, maintain the name. So this is Audi shooting Kent uh, yeah. on the on, on the border with almost on the border with East Sussex. So h- how is it looking this year? Obviously, it's been a been a tricky one to get a season. Have you got one? Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Um, Touchwood, Touchwood, everything all conspiring as it seems to be at the moment. You know, we're we're looking forward to the season ahead. The cover crops have come better than I expected in a ridiculous year yeah i've never known a year like it i've got a good mate who farms locally to me five minutes from me said that um in his rain gauge they had 37 mil since the 24th of april wow Uh, so how anything can grow in that i've no idea it didn't and then it all shot up in the last couple of weeks didn't it yeah but um (laughs) it's a bit late for that look anybody that's had birds this year you couldn't have had a better year, apart from the extremes of the heat. You couldn't have had a better year for bringing them on. Uh, the birds are fit and healthy. Everything that should be in place at this time of year is in place. We're getting a bit of nighttime visitation from four-wheel drives, but the police are uh, the police are on to that, hopefully, and um, they're setting up one or two bits and pieces to hopefully combat that, which... Seems to be back prevalent now. The ground's got softer and everybody's able to run their dogs on soft ground. Um, So, look, you know, it all touched. Would would you never, you know, it's coming to that nervous time of year, isn't it, where where you're unsure how they're going to fly and everything else until the first day and then you're away. do Do you shoot at home as well? No, don't shoot at all. So you have to head out around the country to do your days. Yeah, I know. Look, you know, I... I enjoy shooting, but it's, you know that brings itself it brings itself to another another sort of 
thing that people wouldn't realise is that, and it comes with the territory, and I've got no problem with it coming with the territory at all, but people expect. So wherever I go and whatever I do, as soon as I break that gun and put a cartridge in it, there's a huge level of expectation, be that from the picker-up behind me, the shoot captain stood alongside with a radio, the six-year-old kid that's waiting to pick my empty cartridge cases up, or the beaters. <laughs> so it's not a case of going out to relax. I can imagine. But what about the people around you, though? Like, we talked about pressure of the of your people you're competing against. Surely the people who are pegged either side of you, the, the wheels fall off and they feel the pressure of standing next to a legend. I like the thing that gives you some, you know, I've got some territory to be able to tell them that if they miss, I'm going to kill it behind them, which normally, <laughs> which normally allows me a little bit of leeway. <laughs> Relive it for us. When was the last time someone wiped your eye on a game day? <laughs> um, I've, had a, I've had a very famous eye wipe. Go on. Pippa Middleton did it to me. Really? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> How did that make you feel? I suppose in the in the general scheme of things, it was it was moderately amusing, but um, <laughs> I can't say I dined out on it for weeks. I bet she, I bet she did. Look, well, I'm sure, but look, there's there isn't a person alive that doesn't miss. And if you killed everything that you shot at, be it clay or a game bird or a pigeon or a rabbit or whatever, you wouldn't do it. Yeah, wouldn't be fun if it was easy. No, and I was talking to a keeper in. Northumberland last week and you know we we're talking about foxes and and he said you know what he said don't matter we chase them and chase them and chase them and he said you still wouldn't want to get the last one and he's so right <laughs> and it's you know it's you know you've got to be in it for what it's all about and if you're if you're going to put your neck on the line and stand there and shoot on a peg you've got to be prepared to have your eye wiped yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, I, I must say, all this talk of you being at the top of your game, I had to mention it, this this, this podcast. I, I quite like my music, and uh, people probably don't realise that, I suppose my, my way of asking this question is what's in the water in your part of the world, because your your brother has also been at the top of his game in a totally different industry. He was voted um, world's best DJ in 2001. I mean, how on earth does that feel? Your parents must be quite proud of you too. Yeah, look, and, you know, he's a successful one in the family. He's known everywhere in the world. Uh, I'm known in my local village and about <laughs> four fields in northern Kent, but he's actually he's actually known worldwide. And, and good luck to him. You know, he's, he's done incredibly well. He's, uh, you know, he's got his own record company and... You know, they produce a lot of music and, and, and he's been right up there with the biggest names in in dance music since we were, you know, since we were growing up. And um, I've seen a lot of people that have had my chances in life and his chances in life not make the best of them and fail and then blame everybody else but themselves. We all get good opportunities in life. It's how you make the best of them. And, and I think probably... That's something that if we were going to be compared at all is we've both made the best chances of our, in our life. 
So if anyone wants to go and check George's brother out, it's John Digweed, if you weren't sure, or dance music isn't your thing. Well, I was going to say, do we need to explain both the terms DJ and also dance music for our older listeners, do you think? Or- <laughs> no. <laughs> One thing's for sure, he doesn't look anything like me. He's a slightly svelte version of the Digweed family. <laughs> do, do, uh, do, well, okay, next question, though. Do, do you DJ and does he shoot? Uh, no, he doesn't shoot at all. Uh, but I did, when he was first starting out, I did used to go and work on the door at several clubs in Hastings where he was DJing uh, and doing the warm-up act for the local you know, professional DJ. And I would go and work just so that I was about there if anything ever kicked off. Uh, nice. Wow. Oh, good. Love. But I think uh, quite a good way to round this conversation off. You, you mentioned sort of taking advantage of the opportunities that life presents to you. Lots of our listeners won't have been out on the peg yet this season. Some of them might have been out once or twice. But is there one tip that you can give our listeners before their first day that they can put into practice on the peg? So not uh, not going to the playground, but something that they can do when they get on that peg, a mental thing or something along those lines? Yeah, preparation. I mean, in anything we do in life, it's all about preparation, isn't it? And, um, you know, if you're sitting on the peg and you've got a you've got a howling left to right wind or howling right to left wind or straight up their jacksy wind, if it's straight up their jacksy, you know they're going to be faster than normal. And if you want to, if you want to increase your gun speed on a gun, you would just bring your hand slightly closer to the to the action, um, which will allow you more movement. It makes a gun faster to handle. And if the birds are, you know, you've got a howling go left to right or right to left, you know that you're going to be on the opposite wing to the curl. Um, so if you've got a bird curling right to left, instead of looking at the head and the body, you want to be looking at the left wing because they're going to be sliding all the time. And, you know, also take note when you get to your when you get to your peg of possible pen sightings. I mean, nowadays, some shoots, you can still see a release pen. A lot of shoots pride themselves in the fact that they take down their release pens before they shoot. Mm. But if you can work out roughly where the pen would be or where they're going to fly the birds back to, or another cover crop in the case of partridges, then you know you know roughly the line the birds are going to be taking. And you can set your seat up or your your, your feet up accordingly i mean i i get there and i have a rough look as to where i think the pen is going to be a rough look at the wind and then i sit there and i use my wind gauge which is a decent cigar um <laughs> and i check out which way the smoke's going and then uh, adjust myself accordingly on you know which wing or where on the bird i'm looking that's that's actually some really interesting stuff there i'm trying to visualize the you know, the opposite wing bit. I might have to draw myself a diagram, I think. But yeah, really interesting that. And I'm sure that some people will find that useful. And I think I'll try and put it into practice. Just the same as I've I've anticipated that you're going to get a strong wind. If it's a dead still day and they're not going to be flying at their fastest, if you hold your hand further down the forend uh, towards the muzzle, yeah, that obviously restricts your movement. So if they're not flying the fastest, you hold your hand further down the forend to restrict your movement so that it makes your shot a steadier shot rather than a whippy one. Very good. I'm going to use that myself. Seriously good tip, that. Yeah. 
So, George, the way that we round these podcasts off is with something we call Desert Island Shooting. Uh, it's one last day shooting's going to disappear. You're never going to be able to do it again. So it's your one last day. Where would it be? Who would you have with you? What are you going to do? And also, what cigar are you going to take? <laughs> um, I'd probably take a Partega Series D number four. Okay. But then I'd also I wouldn't just take one a because box. I tend to I tend to chain smoke them during a day's pheasant shooting um, <laughs> or, or whatever we're on. Do you know what I think I'd probably do something out of the box and I would go to somewhere Eastern Europe or or somewhere like that and have a day's driven boar shooting. Very nice because having done it a few times. Then there's no question that the adrenaline, like I was saying earlier, we don't get to do it that much. So your your thrill of doing it is is that much heightened. But I think to see a wild boar come through the wood and and know that if you don't get it quite right with a Kyler or something like that, there is a, an element of danger as well as just the the sport and the economic side where you're culling for the local farmers and everything else, there is a slight threat there if you don't get it quite right. And I think the the pomp and ceremony and the tableau and the respect that's shown by all hunters and all shoot staff where they play hunting hunting tunes afterwards with yeah. you know, trombones yeah. and everything else. Is, I love that bit. It, the, the whole thing is... Is I think it was going to be your last day to go out with the hunting themes from a uh, from a band with a tableau laid out in front of you. I think that's probably about as poignant uh, a finish as you'd want. That's very that's good. A very very lovely romantic answer, which I really yeah. enjoy. I like that. And you'd have to do it with friends, of course. Yeah, uh, family and friends. I wouldn't uh, take a private jet of them over, wouldn't you? Yeah. Although uh, I think I'd probably go on a private jet and make them walk. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just say, guys, as well, that I'm probably uh, a bit uncool saying this, but where I have got my birds, I've got three or four days now to let at the shoot because I didn't want to let fully all the days until I'd got them. I'm not one of these people that takes bookings in the hope that we've got everything, but I have now got everything and... Uh, I have got three or four days available. So if you know anybody that gets cancelled or is looking for a day, I've got one available. No problem at all. So we do it on the website. Now we're doing it on the podcast, connecting people that want to go shooting. Yeah. No problem. <laughs> I feel confident that you'll have your phone ringing off the hook. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Well, or maybe with some Americans who found it suddenly just a little bit cheaper than it was. Yeah, quite. Well, we've got a few coming anyway. <laughs> Good. Great. Well, George, thank you ever so much for joining us. It, it's been wonderful. Oh, look, having not listened to one before, I intend to listen to this and uh, and will listen to them now going forward. Uh, but it's been a pleasure coming on. And um, if you ever want to do it again, I'd be delighted. Okay, Ben. 
Thank you. Excellent. Right. So before we go, as per usual, there is one final reminder that you can get your hands on a pair of the highly exclusive, highly desirable Guns on Pegs podcast shooting sock garters by sending us your shooting dilemmas for us to resolve or by sending us your unpopular opinions or nominating your shooting heroes or by getting in touch just to let us know where you've been listening. Just drop us an email to pod at gunsonpegs.com. And if we read it out on the next episode or any future episode, we will send you some garters. Uh, also a reminder that the 4th of November is our 50th episode live recording at Clay's Bar in London. Drop us an email to let us know if you'd like to come. We will be back in a couple of weeks' time with another episode and another special guest. But until then, thanks very much for listening and goodbye. <laughs>